Welcome to Shaping Sustainable Supply Chains, a new podcast where we dig deeper into the social dilemmas arising from global supply chains and where we provide evidence-based solutions on how to make supply chains more sustainable. I'm Nicholas Martin and I will be your host for today's episode. Thank you for joining us. In this episode, we talk about the biggest risk for supply chains, which chances might also derive from the corona pandemic to create added value that is more socially responsible and environmentally friendly. With me in the studio is Tilman Altenborg. He is the head of the research program Transformation of Economic and Social Systems at the German Development Institute. Hello, Tilman. Thanks for being with us. It's my pleasure. And Gary Jereffi, the so-called godfather of value chain theory, is with us from Durham, North Carolina in the US, where he is a professor for sociology and director of the Global Value Chain Center at Duke University. Welcome, Gary. Good to have you with us. Thank you, Nico. And hello, Tillman. This is the first episode of Shaping Sustainable Global Supply Chains. Tillman, You are one of the organizers of a research network with the same name, Sustainable Global Supply Chains, which brings together 60 to 70 leading researchers from around the globe and is hosted by four German institutes. You have also initiated this podcast. Why do you think policymakers and researchers should focus more on sustainable supply chains? Well, thank you, Nico. Firstly, I think Globalization today happens in, in value chains. Firms around the world no longer produce first and then look for customers. What we see instead is big firms, H&M for fashion, for example, or, or Panasonic for electronics, placing orders and exactly telling suppliers what to produce, when to deliver, and also what kind of social and environmental standards they have to adhere to. And we're living in a very unequal world. So if we want opportunities for small firms, for firms in developing countries, for people excluded from the labor market, then we need to influence the conditions how the big firms source. And second, we see a lot of political interest arising in supply chain issues. It's no longer a technical issue for supply chain managers in firms or for economists, Societies are caring about these things, about how cobalt for our car batteries is produced in Congo, about working conditions in clothing companies, about where our medical supplies come from in the corona epidemic. And we see a heated debate about laws regulating supply chains. We see ambitious plans by the European Commission to establish circular economies and all these Topics are very complex and they require research. So if you want to have balanced policy solutions that take all the potential effects into account, then research is needed to inform policymaking. On this podcast, we will be talking from now on regularly with leading experts. Today, we are very happy to have Gary Jereffi with us. Gary, once one starts searching for the word value chain, your name is everywhere. How do you feel with being called the godfather of the value chain? Well, I, I take it as a, as a great uh, compliment, uh, but also as a tribute to a community of researchers that over the last 25 years have really been building this framework. And as 
Tillman mentioned, it's a, it's a framework that is now far beyond the academic community, but is linking very much into practitioners, business leaders, activists, and, and international policy networks. So I'm, I'm very happy we've been able to build this kind of a bridge that everybody can uh, link up to. You just mentioned your theory, the so-called global value chain framework. In a few words, and uh, I have to put emphasis uh, on a few, what is the global value chain framework? The global value chain framework is an approach to economic globalization that focuses on global industries, multinational companies, and their supply chains. And it's the industry focus, the global industry focus that I think is unique. In the framework, we have two main concepts. There's how these global value chains are governed by the top companies around the world. So we call that the governance theory. And I think 25 years ago was a key article that began to introduce uh, the idea that manufacturers are one set of leading companies, but big retailers and brands are a very different set. So that created this sense of a governance structure. And the other key concept bottom up is what we call upgrading, looking at it from the country point of view, Countries are all tied into different global industries, but they're trying to find out how to move up technology ladders, how to create more jobs, how to make their industries more sustainable. So I think that the global value chains theory, which really started around 2001, has really been trying to link those two levels of governance theory and upgrading analysis uh, in a more systematic way with studies on all different sectors from manufacturing and agriculture into services and the new digital economy. Since we know that value chain upgrading is a central part of your theory, we have prepared a little voicer. Let us have a quick look at what value chain upgrading means. Production nowadays is often a quite complex process with different steps in different countries. Some steps are very profitable and others are not. Cocoa farmers get paid little, whereas chocolate production and marketing can be very profitable. Clothing, electronics and toys, for example, are quite labor-intensive products. They're often produced in the global south, where wages are lower. When we talk about upgrading, it means that developing countries try to earn more money by moving into those production steps that yield higher value added. From assembling electronics to developing own products or establishing own brands, for example. So China is obviously one of the countries that managed to climb up the value chain ladder. Gary, do you have examples of other countries that reached value chain upgrading? Absolutely. I think one of the most successful countries actually in this post-war era, I mean, first really was Japan. It was a leading industrial power, but became a major exporter. And, and so part of globalization was how countries developed export-oriented strategies of growth. South Korea is probably the most uh, successful emerging economy in terms of having its own uh, multinational companies, its own technology development, and very extensive supply chains. India, in certain areas like pharmaceuticals and offshore services, is a big player in terms of creating technology and moving up supply chains. So what I see is that different countries, uh, including Brazil and agriculture, Mexico and manufacturing, pick different key industries that they use as a way to move into these value chains. And the key is moving up that technology ladder and, and eventually creating their own brands, their own jobs, and introducing new kinds of uh, innovations into the global economy. 
Tillman, you want to add on that? No, I think that's a very good description. And uh, of course, um, we have been working on, on a number of countries, for example, comparing how Costa Rica moved from simple clothing assembly upwards to now working with Intel and other electronic companies and moving from employing badly paid female workers to now employing engineers in a much more sophisticated industry and, and seeing how this happened in Costa Rica, but then seeing that the same industry in Honduras is still stagnating at the same level since 30 years without any sign of upgrading. That shows how different trajectories can be shaped by smart policymaking. In this podcast, we want to focus on sustainability in supply chains. Gary, how can your theory help to make supply chains more sustainable? I think a key for sustainability is one, good economic policy and, and planning. So industrial policy, smart industrial policy is a key. And then I think sustainability is also moving more towards issues of environmental upgrading and social upgrading and coupling that with economic upgrading. And I think that's one of the biggest changes in GVC theory is expanding the concept of upgrading from just being a better exporter or creating more jobs uh, into linking that with uh, social advances and especially these sustainability goals uh, connected to environmental upgrading. You also talk about value chain governance. You just mentioned that uh, big companies have the power to change their supply chains and those of their suppliers. What could be their incentives to make their added value more sustainable? Part of what companies are trying to do, the, the big branded companies and, and multinational manufacturers, is they're, they're being responsive to the kinds of pressures they're seeing towards more sustainable development. And they're focusing on using less packaging materials. A great example is Walmart, which supplies very heavily out of China. And a company like Walmart, the world's largest retailer, told its Chinese suppliers that within one year, they have to reduce their packaging materials by 25%. Because Walmart has such market power globally, they're able to get first-tier suppliers to make those changes, whereas often government policy pushing in the same direction or non-governmental organizations, NGOs, don't have the same degree of success. So part of what we've been seeing in global value chains is how big companies can be pulled into these upgrading initiatives, social, environmental, or economic, and, and move in some ways more quickly and more effectively in terms of their broad supply chain than policymakers can. Tillman, you are observing the social impacts of supply chains from a perspective of developing countries. If we take a step back and look at today's paradigm of supply chains from outside, how sustainable are supply chains? Well, that depends, of course. We are talking about very different supply chains and whether we talk about agriculture or the automotive industry or what Gary just mentioned, uh, the sourcing of uh, supermarket chains or electronics or whatever industry. So the sustainability problems are different in different industries, of course. Many are clearly becoming more sustainable, especially in the rich countries as consumers and policymakers press companies to improve their practices and, and report on their sustainability programs, for example. The, the example that Gary just mentioned about Walmart, this is probably mainly because they are 
um, a company with a face to the customers. So they want to show their customers that they are environmentally conscious. So basically then they develop high standards within their company and pass it on through the supply chains and then thereby triggering change, for example, in China. But of course, then there are also problematic hotspots. No? I mean, for example, the labor rights in the garment industry in, in China or Vietnam or Bangladesh and the environmental conditions and, and corruption in the oil and mining industries or, or the use of, of dangerous pesticides on farms where even children work in, in cotton farming, for example, or horticulture for export. These are still things that we can't really tolerate. And that's, of course, especially the case in, in developing countries where uh, legal enforcement is weak. But even in the rich countries, in, in Germany, for example, um, working in health conditions are sometimes incredibly bad. For example, in the subcontracting firms in the construction industry or, for example, labor conditions in the slaughterhouses that has been a big topic now in, in, the, in the corona crisis. So even here we do have that, that kind of hotspots. Mm. But if we look at sustainability as such, it's cleaner production, it's social responsible jobs. But we also want to have thriving companies and, let's say, good jobs for everyone and cheaper consumer goods. Is this all possible at the same time, Tillman? There are, of course, difficult trade-offs. If you want to become more competitive, then it may come at the expense of, of labor conditions. Uh, countries may try to uh, become kind of to lower prices, lower costs, for example, of, of production thereby externalizing environmental costs. And that means basically polluting because they don't have to pay for it. So if you raise environmental standards, it can, of course, uh, affect your competitiveness if, for example, other countries, other governments don't enforce the same standards. But on the other hand, as Gary said in the beginning, the, the big challenge is also to bring the green perspective, decarbonization, circular economy, and the, those uh, perspectives into the whole supply chain discussion. And we are doing a lot of research on where there are win-wins so, so that you can reduce your environmental footprint, become a kind of green company and at the same time make that a competitive advantage. You already mentioned challenges. A challenge for supply chains could be the slow shift from linear production to rather circular production. Let's have a listen. The current model of our economy is mostly based on the extraction of resources they use for products and services, and their disposal as waste. The circular economy aims to change that. If we talk about circular economy, we talk about how to minimize material input and minimize waste. A way to achieve this goal is by working with a resource-saving product design. Products and material can be reused or recycled. The switch to a circular economy will have an impact on supply chains For example, by reducing the need for virgin materials, but also by creating new opportunities for production steps and value added. So Tillman, the supply chains of the future with a clean environmental footprint, can you give us a concrete example of how this circular economy will affect the role of developing countries? Firstly, our current economic system is based on extracting natural resources, processing them, using them and then throwing them away from the field or from the from the copper mine to the landfill. And, and that model is clearly unsustainable. We're using too many resources. And uh, so, so we clearly need to move towards a system where less materials are used, where 
resource efficiency is higher, where more things are reused and more things are recycled, and the linear supply chain needs to be, become a closed loop. And, and that will, of course, change economies in many ways. It's an opportunity because reusing, sharing, reselling, repairing, recycling are all very labor-intensive. So for developing countries where labor costs are low, it may make sense uh, rather than importing uh, freshly produced things with virgin inputs, putting more emphasis in these kind of labor-intensive uh, uses. So it can become a big generator of employment, especially in low-cost countries. But it will, of course, mean that fewer resources are extracted. And, and that means that prices of many resources, mineral resources, for example, will fall, which then may affect many countries negatively whose exports depend, on, for example, on minerals. One of the central challenges for supply chains is obviously the corona pandemic that has changed a lot. Lockdowns and availability problems have questioned whether supply chains still do their job. Gary, looking at the global supply chains, do you think we will go back to the paradigm of pre-corona times or do you expect a substantial change in how supply chains are structured? My own sense is supply chains have actually begun to respond reasonably well, but with a key lag, sometimes six, eight weeks. And, and in a pandemic that has an exponential curve, that's too long. That's created many, many human problems. But when we go post-pandemic, I think some of the uh, scale-up strategies that have worked, especially in terms of government policies that have tried to get uh, local suppliers to even partner across industries to produce these goods, those solutions aren't sustainable longer term. And so I think as we move into this post-pandemic period, we're not going to go back to the pre-coronavirus normal. We're going to have to have a new configuration of supply chains, and it's going to involve some elements of reshoring supply chains that had been externally oriented, often with very heavy emphasis in, in Asian countries, which are the largest scale, lowest cost suppliers. So some reshoring is going to occur. But I think that companies in the U.S. and in Europe often view the, the basic products that are needed, like medical supplies, as not particularly profitable in, in a global economy. So I think we're going to have to be very, countries are going to have to be very strategic in what you would try to reshore to Germany or to the United States or to Japan, for that matter. Uh, I think another option that's going to come out is regional sourcing or so-called nearshoring, where you're going to be building up regional ecosystems around these key uh, industries. And I think that's going to become more important. But there's no doubt that, that national policies are, are seeing the security risks of broadly extended and vulnerable supply chain linkages as something that has to be changed. And so I think there's going to be a, a sort of a new normal that's created where these supply chains have to be resilient, but they also have to continue to be efficient. And there are then trade-offs, as Tillman mentioned, between security, but also long-term efficiency. And I think we're starting to see how some of that could emerge. And that is a really critical role for the research community to be in dialogue with the policy community over what these changes might look like going forward. 
when we look at the working conditions in supply chains, we are far from having an equitable distribution of wealth, especially in the raw material sector, but also in the textile industry and many others. The wages are low, shifts are long, and unfortunately, this is old news. Tillman, would you say that the pandemic has affected the working conditions as well? Yes, it definitely has. Due to the global recession, many, many orders had to be cancelled. The fashion industry suffered a lot. Many industry workers in the clothing industry, for example, in Vietnam or Myanmar have been kind of uh, displaced. People are buying less flowers. So exports of cut flowers from Kenya or Ethiopia declined a lot. And, and I mean, there, there are signs of recession everywhere, of course. I mean, that's in a global recession. Uh, what's particularly problematic is that uh, many of the suppliers are in a weak bargaining position. So, for example, if a big clothing company sees its, its sales declining, then it's an easy way basically to cut off a, a, a subcontracting arrangement with a firm in Bangladesh, for example. And there should be kind of a better, more equitable uh, risk sharing among these, these companies. Gary mentioned the word nearshoring. Could the pandemic not also be a chance for some developing countries? For instance, being an alternative production location. I mean, many Western countries are talking about diversification of their production. In addition to China, why not produce in an African country instead, for example? Well, some big firms may want to diversify their, their risks, as Gary said, and, and source from more countries. So, yes, some big clothing companies already started kind of Africa procurement initiatives to become more independent from China, for example. That was already before the pandemic. And then the trade war between the U.S. and China has reinforced these trends. And, and the pandemic may, of course, be an additional reason to diversify. On the other hand, sourcing from Africa is generally considered more risky, Because of political instability, for example, if we look at what's happening in Ethiopia right now, which had just been building up in clothing export industry, which is now, of course, off the global map. And overall, I expect that firms will rely more on automation to become less dependent on the human factor. I mean, a, a robot can produce regardless of corona and regardless of lockdowns and so on. And then firms will consider producing at home or near shoring, for example, buying from clothes from Turkey rather than from, from East Asia, in, in the case of European companies, or producing at home in, a, in, a, in an automated way, or sourcing, for example, from China, where automation is already very much advanced. And that's, of course, bad news for the rest of developing countries. Gary, what do you think? How will automation affect supply chains? Automation is, is a problem both for developed and developing countries, but I think it's often not as far advanced as we would think. I recently did a study on the athletic footwear industry with an emphasis on Adidas and Nike, and Adidas has been a leader in trying to automate footwear production and create factories in Germany and in the United States in order to respond more quickly to uh, domestic demand. And what they discovered was that the production hubs that were primarily in Asia, China, Vietnam, Indonesia, were very difficult to move into Germany because you could not get the different components 
even for a relatively simple product like athletic footwear. And in the end, they closed down their speed factories in Germany and Atlanta and the U.S. and basically have returned to the Asian sourcing model, but trying to encourage, encourage some of the Asian suppliers to introduce some automation. So I think automation is a reality. It's it's coming, but it's much more likely in industries like electronics and automobiles, uh, much more difficult to introduce in some of the labor-intensive industries like footwear or garments. So we talked about the effects that the corona pandemic had and still has on global supply chains, how a circular economy will affect the paradigm of how automation might create pressure on developing countries. By the way, on each of these three aspects, we will have a deeper look in the upcoming episodes of this podcast. But now we want to look at solutions. What can policymakers do to improve the social outcome of supply chains in developing countries? There is a specific debate on the European level, but also in Germany, in the Netherlands, for example, as well, about due diligence. Due diligence laws that might come into effect soon. In this scenario, companies would be held accountable for their supply chains. But what is due diligence? Due diligence means that all business partners in a supply chain comply with certain standards. Standards which can be checked. Due diligence can foster human rights and protect the environment, as large companies are often criticized for buying products from suppliers that do not ensure good practices, especially in poor countries. Only very few corporations voluntarily apply due diligence. The European Parliament and several European governments are therefore preparing legal initiatives to make it mandatory. France already has such a law. Tillman, where do you see the advantages and disadvantages of due diligence laws? A survey by the German government showed that most foreign invested firms did not care much about this due diligence or the basics checks in the, in the supply chains. So basically the, what they do is outsourcing kind of social and environmental risks in the, in the supply chain. The idea of, of a supply chain law is to make due diligence mandatory. I mean, man, many countries have voluntary due diligence procedures, but only some. And by making it mandatory, one would kind of basically ensure that all foreign invested firms look at their supply chains. And that's a good thing. But of course, the devil is in the detail. The law must make sure that it does not create a bureaucratic monster for medium-sized firms. And it should avoid that companies say, okay, um, if I buy cocoa from a small farmer family in Africa, then I cannot avoid child work because children work in, in African family enterprises. So then I may be taken to court for this and then I better buy cocoa from a big plantation I don't source from Bangladesh or Ethiopia, but rather source from, uh, from Turkey or so, because it's too unsure. And I don't want to be taken to court. So we shouldn't have these kind of unintended consequences. But other than that, I think a due diligence law makes a lot of sense. Gary, what is your position on that? Do stronger supply chain laws, regulations and tougher standards make sense? I think they make sense. And I think they can be enforced better in some countries than others. But the concern I would have is that the way supply chains are structured, companies have been able to get around these laws by 
sourcing production elsewhere. So I, I think we, we've had that classic sort of cat and mouse game of you try to regulate and you put in place important regulations and then companies try to escape them. I, I think that the due diligence regulations would have the greatest impact if in addition to national uh, regulations or policies, we use pressures coming from consumers uh, and other civil society organizations by making it in the interest, the self-interest of the leading companies to do these kinds of things rather than external regulation. And I think one way this could start to happen is that since uh, we, we talked about uh, regional ecosystems, I think since 2008, nine, when we had the big financial crisis, a lot of the larger economies are are much more skeptical of export-oriented industrialization as a long-term growth model because you can't rely on trade alone to, to develop economies. And they're starting to turn inward. You see that in China. You see that in India, Mexico, and other large economies. Inward to the domestic economy or to the regional economy. And I think first-tier suppliers, not the big multinational companies, but big domestic firms, they're the ones that have to internalize a lot of these same objectives. So I think as supply chains turn inward, we have to, that may be one of the key ways that these policies of due diligence will have more impact because the domestic economy itself is where you can create a lot of the incentives to follow these policies. And you won't be able to escape by going to another country if your key markets are much more uh, focused on uh, domestic supply or, or regional supply. Gary, the research you're doing, how do you translate the results into public discussions and inform policymakers? I think one of the, the, the most important issues is to take what look like bigger trends and make them very concrete. And I think one of the ways to make these policy issues more uh, tractable is to start to highlight that the trend, as I see it in these, in these value chains, is to continue to reduce geographic scale. They've gone from being very global in the 1990s and 2000s to being more regional in the 2010s. And I think in the 2020s, what I'm seeing in a lot of the studies around the world is that value creation and value capture is becoming much more local. Cities and city governments or state and provincial governments are actually taking on the mantle of being policy innovators. And if we can start to get some of these supply chain and policy dynamics recast at more local levels, then I think we have a chance for a very, very exciting experimentation around sustainability, around due diligence, around new kinds of jobs and how the digital economy can create value. So to me, if we can make these supply chain, value chain conversations much more local, we can actually have a bigger impact. What about you, Tillman? How do you translate research into public debate? Well, this podcast is part of a newly created uh, research network, Global Supply Chains, and it's hosted by four institutes and a network of, of global researchers like Gary. And, and uh, we're all close to policymakers. We're all research-based think tanks. So we're undertaking and stimulating research where we see important knowledge gaps. I think we have highlighted 
many of the societal challenges today that are really important to investigate and where policy solutions are needed. We organize conferences, sometimes workshops behind closed doors for policymakers. We often work with, with agencies like development banks and technical cooperation agencies, and we write or we commission policy briefings or, or confidential reports to ministries about, for example, how to design a supply chain law. We started a new blog. We'll have an annual flagship report starting in 2022 that condenses policy lessons derived from, from research. And we have this new series of podcasts, of course, as one of the media to, to really engage with the wider public. Supply chain is a big issue and we will be following the debate around supply chains here on this podcast. Uh, we will provide you with the leading experts on different aspects of global supply chains. So far, thank you for joining us, Gary Giraffi, godfather of the value chain theory and director of the Global Value Chain Center at Duke University and Tilman Altenborg, program head of the German Development Institute. Thanks to our guests and all of you listening. My name is Nicholas Martin and in the upcoming episode, we talk in detail about how the pandemic changed global division of labor and have a deeper discussion whether renationalization of production is a viable option for our future. Stay tuned and stay safe.